I had like a sinus infection a few weeks ago, and it's like I had this cough ever since. So I cough. And that, this way with the microphone, I can <coughs> don't have to cough into it, which is kind of nice. Anyway, well, it's good to be back. It's been a year and a half. In fact, the only time I was here was a year and a half ago. And uh, when Vince jumped into that particular role here, it's, it's good to get back into the Bay Area. We've lived uh, in Texas since 2014. So we were in Castro Valley for a long time. Hayward, Fremont, in that part of the world for 23 and a half years. Yeah, we moved over here from Washington State in 1990. And then we're here. And actually, we moved back to Texas just to be closer to our family. <coughs> you know, we just wanted to walk our parents through the last season of their, of their life. And... Uh, you know, we, we always moved based on ministry, but then we, we, we moved back to based on family. And sometimes you just do that, just to walk them through. It was good. And then I quit pastoring. I pastored 32 years, and I was in ministry a lot longer than that. And people said, what? What do you do now? And I said, well, I'm a, I'm a recovering pastor. <laughs> you know, it's been nine years and four months and seven days <laughs> since my last pastorate. But it's, I, I, used, I just take what I did when I pastored and I just take it on the road. Seems to work for me. I just, it's on the road a lot. I mean, I'm always on the road. But I enjoy what I do. I don't necessarily like getting on planes. But I do enjoy what I do. Just to see what God is up to on planet Earth. And he's up to something. The church's mission is to develop transformed lovers of God who will transform the world in which they live in. It's not your job to transform the whole world, but God has put you in, in a little world. Relationships and people, families, workplaces. And our job is simply to bring transformation as we expand his kingdom, which is the emphasis of of the New Testament, you know, it's the kingdom of God. It was the primary message of Jesus. It's what he preached, the gospel of the kingdom. He uh, taught his disciples to do the same thing. And that's, and we continue to preach that. In fact, uh, you know, Matthew 24 14, right around there, it's, it says something like uh, that we are to 
preach the gospel of the kingdom, and then the end shall come. So we are to continue to, to preach about the kingdom of God, the rule of heaven, and expand the rule of heaven on this earth. Ultimately, one day Jesus will come again, and then we have that Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, where that angel will sound that trumpet, and then, you know, then basically would declare that Jesus, you know, that everything is under his, under his rule right now. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. The book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talks about that he's going to reign until all of his enemies are put under his feet, and that last enemy happens to be, happens to be death. But the Isaiah chapter 9 passage is a prophetic word about the coming Messiah. And, we, and when we get into that, we, you know, there's something we sing in the, every Christmas, the Hallelujah Chorus, you know. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Then the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, uh, Father, whatever that is, Prince of Peace, whatever, you know. You know what I'm talking about. You sing it, you know. <laughs> And then, then we kind of stop right there in the singing. But if we were to continue on with that, it would talk about how he, that there is going to be no end to the increase of his government or of his kingdom. It talks about the characteristics of his kingdom, righteousness and justice, that he will reign. And then it finishes by saying that the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. So it's like God is going to back this up, and this is going to happen. You see, we, we need to have any kind of an end-time theology that should be consistent with the prophetic word, that there is no end to the increase of his government. But there's, there's coming to this mentality of the church that, well, everything's got to get bad. And uh, everything's got to go down the tubes, and then one day Jesus is going to come rescue us because we couldn't do it. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay. That doesn't seem to fit the prophetic word in Isaiah 9. There shall be no end to the increase of his government or of his kingdom. No end to, in other words, his kingdom should be increasing on the earth, not decreasing. But the church has taken an inward journey. We've come into our little fortresses, and we hunker down waiting for Jesus to come and rescue us because we don't seem to be able to do what he asks us to do. And you got to be thinking, maybe, maybe he's waiting for us to do what he's asked us to do before he comes. I mean, think about that. Maybe there is something that needs to happen with us that the church actually makes the shift back into what she's called to do to establish the kingdom of God on this earth. Now, in the past, the church has tried to do that. They haven't done it very well because they did it more like the world rather than like the kingdom. You know, Jesus... Jesus, when he, you know, when he appointed these, these 12 there, and, you know, he used the term apostle. And that word apostle actually carried a job description with that word. That job description 
because they it was it was not a you know a term that was familiar to the history of Israel. It's a term that you find in Roman history and Greek history. Problem is, is that if you ever look up that word apostle, you're just going to see in the light of Christian history rather than the original how it was used. And it's a kind of a military term. And so these guys were in charge of look at the Greek culture. They were in charge of these armadas that went and conquered a land. And then in the Roman history, they actually had a little bit more of a definition to it because not only did they conquer a land, but they assimilated the land. And the way they assimilated the land was by making them Roman. They tried to bring the culture of Rome into this place, and so they culturized them. So, you know, that's what apostles did. Not only they conquered, but then they assimilated. This is why you have Paul of Tarsus, a Roman citizen, but he never went to Rome for a long time. But, you know, he, it's because Tarsus in Asia Minor there was a Roman colony, but they were Romanized. And so since they, brought, they were Romanized, and so therefore that became a, you know, you can get your Roman citizenship by living in that. They underst- the people of Israel understood that. These disciples understood that because that's what Rome tried to do to them, even though it was, was not very successful. But they understood what that word apostle did. And one of the problems throughout the years is that, you know, people have tried to bring the kingdom by using not the the kingdom ways that Jesus established it, but by bringing the world ways. You know, so they would have a crusade. <laughs> we had the crusades. We had all the things like, okay, you're not really accomplishing it, you know, heaven's way. The Gentiles lord it over, but the kingdom ways penetrates. The kingdom ways serves. The kingdom, you know, spreads seeds, and it has, spreads leaven and, and it, it, leaven gets into the loaf, and it just affects the whole loaf. You just give it time, and it will impact the whole loaf. That's, that's how the kingdom works. It doesn't work by, by simply lording it, you know, control, manipulation, domination. That's not the kingdom at all. But that's the way we grow up. That's the way we think. That's the way, you know, countries think, people, leaders think. But those aren't, you know, those aren't heaven's ways at all. Uh, and so it's, we have to shift our thinking. You know, Jesus gave all these parables about the kingdom, kind of how it works. You know, he talked about it's a seed that goes into the, the garden, a mustard seed, like a really tiny seed, but eventually it takes over. It's a place where birds can find rest. It didn't say it controls the garden. It just simply rises up and impacts the whole garden. You see, salt, being salt and being light, those are the ways of the kingdom, but it changes things. It transforms things. And if his kingdom is going to increase, that means the impact of the rule of heaven will be felt. In Isaiah chapter 47, there's that story about the river that comes out of the temple, right? And it, it, as it goes out of the temple, it's very, very shallow because it goes right under the door. But the further it gets away from the temple, the deeper it gets, the wider it gets, more life happens all around it. And you see, that's kind of the way the church is supposed to be functioning. The further we get out, 
the more we should see happening around us. <coughs> so we're entering into that age, really, right now, where a season where there is the restoration. We've gone through different moves of God, different... God's been restoring things. You know, we've always had uh, these gifts all in the church. They just never were welcomed into the church. You know, it's like, it's kind of like the prophetic thing. You know, it just scares people. Oftentimes the prophetic, because it's misunderstood. But, you know, they got welcomed back into the church. And the apostolic, they just kind of functioned outside of the church. You know, for example, the Lauren Cunningham, who just passed away recently, you know, with YWAM, you know, Bill Bright. These guys were, you know, they called them parachurch ministries. Well, they were really, they were the church, okay? But uh, a lot of the, they didn't fit the structure that most people perceive, so they call them parachurch, you know, outside the church, where they were the church. <laughs> Probably functioning more like the church than they, anybody else is functioning like the church, to be honest with you. But the good news is, is that, <coughs> a lot of the apostolic is actually being invited back into the church. And so we're able to see the full function of that. You know, when I was here last time, I talked briefly about, you know, the shift that's happening because, you know, that, that the church moved away from apostolic culture to a pastoral culture. And uh, it's, it's like once they started building buildings and they started settling in and and so what happened, they gravitated to people that took care of them. They, they, people just liked somebody to take care of them. And so those apostolic, they were scary because they were like sending you out, you know, like sheep among wolves. <coughs> so that was kind of a <coughs> scary thing. <coughs> I got to get my cough drop. Where's that put that thing? Sorry. It's just going to be this way, okay? Okay, we're good? But the apostolic is not, culture is not about apostles. It's about saints getting fully equipped to do what God's called them to do. When there's tried to be some apostolic culture in the past, it really wasn't apostolic culture because the apostolic serves and creates a serving culture, not a controlling culture. A lot of churches are used to controlling environments, and that's not a kingdom environment, and that's not an apostolic environment. Apostolics, those guys served. Jesus served his disciples, and he taught them how to serve, and that's... You know, how you actually gained authority in somebody's life is you serve them. When, we, when I lived in Hayward, we gained authority in our city by serving the city, not by trying to tell them what to do or trying to control or manipulate or outvote something. We just, we just served them, and, and they gave us authority. That's how it, that's how it works. But, that, you know, the kingdom is just not the ways of this world. So we're moving away from the professional uh, clergy, which is a lot of the culture the church has been used to, to realize that everybody's called into, into ministry. We are, and so we're redefining it, what that is. That it's not, you know, just something that's done inside of a 
you know, the four walls of a church is actually something that is a part of a person's lifestyle. And so what God is doing, he's actually raising up saints to penetrate the world and bring his kingdom into it. You know, and what is happening is that the church is starting to be the church, not just go to church. And uh, it's kind of exciting. But one of the problems is, is that a lot of people that are in the church, in that pastoral culture, they're finding that they no longer fit in the pastoral culture. Because everything's about the church, you know. In other words, the way you serve, you know, it's like, you know, you, you, know, you want to be a greeter, you know, serve on a committee or something like that. I mean, they, they think everything ministry is all defined by a job that you have in a, in a church. And there's a whole lot of people that are all of a sudden realizing I'm called to do ministry. It just doesn't fit inside of a church context anymore. So they don't fit. And so there's this frustration that seems to be rising up that with people who don't fit in church anymore. They just they come into a thing and they go, I mean, I like to worship. That's good. I, I like that. And, but they feel called to ministry. And they sit down and they talk with their pastor. And the pastor says, well, you know, we can get you a job. And, you know, can you work with the two- and three-year-olds? I mean, they're, they're giving them some, something inside the house and, uh, you know, which a lot of times they're just willing to do. It's not, that's usually not an issue, but it's like, but I'm called to do something bigger and greater. And like, but a lot of times, you know, the pastors, they will, they define faithfulness to God as if you're faithful attending the church. But what if you're doing ministry on a Sunday morning? Well, you can't be doing that. That can't be God. Got to, got to keep. You remember that Sabbath day, right? You're, if you're going to be faithful to God, you got to be here. And so, a lot of them, they just don't. You know, they don't, they just don't fit because they're called to something bigger and something greater. <coughs> so when I pastored. Uh, and I began to understand what God has called us to do. I, I was really good at equipping and training, empowering, releasing, and sending. I was not very good at collecting. I wasn't good at collecting sheep. And, if, you know, I mean, if people wanted to come hang around, that, that worked. But I'm, I just wasn't good at collecting sheep. We're going to go do something. We're going to change something. It's like, you know, what do I do now? I spend most of my time now really just equipping the saints. You know, I wrote this book on deliverance, okay? Have anybody seen that book on deliverance? Some of you have it? So it's, people get me to, Look, if you hadn't seen it, look up Sid Roth. Put Sid Roth and Rodney Hogue, and you and just look up the little video there I did a few years ago after I wrote the book. Kind of introduces it. His stuff's kind of corny, you know, especially if he does a little bit of the reenactment stuff, you know. <laughs> but it, you know, it kind of lays the groundwork there. 
But I do a lot of empowering people with, you know, setting people free and deliverance and stuff like that. And in fact, for uh, Randy Clark's organization, Global Awakening is Randy Clark is the guy who started that. I, I'm, I'm the primary equipper for deliverance in their, in, in their system. But they just like the way that I do it because we're just, we're just going to honor God and honor the person, which is kind of important. Sometimes deliverance doesn't honor people very well. It humiliates them, shames them, which is really more of the enemy than I think than really heaven. They might get set free, but you're going to have a casualty there. But what the Lord is doing, he's shaking everything now because he is revealing his kingdom. You know, I mean, there's a shaking, the Hebrews 12 shaking. He's going to shake what can be shaken, so what cannot be shaken will remain. And what cannot be shaken is his kingdom. So he's shaking, and, and, and as he's doing this shaking there, he's actually beginning to, to emerge that, that kingdom culture. Uh, we're turning us back to the kingdom of God and, and, the, and the apostolic culture, which actually brings transformation into the world and changes the world, impacts the world. I mean, just look at the last, uh, I mean, not the last, but look at those, you know, those, those first few centuries, and you see, you know, how the whole Roman Empire was impacted with the kingdom. I mean, Constantine didn't get it right. I mean, I don't even know if you really knew the Lord, but, but they could all feel the effects of the kingdom of God. And that's really what we're going for. The kingdom of heaven is not, we're, we're, it's not like setting up a government you know, on this earth. It's not about uh, you know, earthly rule. Jesus can kind of do that as he comes again. But our, our thing is that we want to impact that, that every system in this nation, and every nation, every system is fully impacted by the rule of heaven. Having the DNA of heaven in this. Uh, right now, this weekend, uh, or the last few days down in San Jose, Ed Solvoso has been gathering a bunch of transformationists and kind of teaching them on that. I got to know Ed when I was living here in the Bay Area, and, and I always loved going to his conferences because he seemed to collect these people who are transforming the world. You know, like Francis Oda, who just had this, he's in Hawaii, and Francis has this architectural firm that actually works on cities. He basically plans cities. And, you know, Tahiti was having this whole thing where they were just, you know, brought these people like him and others in to give them plans because they were making, they wanted to make like a Waikiki type of beach there. Well, I'm not going to tell you the whole story, you know, but it, but it's, it is kind of long, but it's really interesting. The bottom line is this, is that he ended up getting the, the, like the $11 billion project, had the favor of God on him, did other projects for him before he even started that one, ended up leading the president to the Lord, the, the, the president's wife, some of their staff people baptized everybody in the presidential swimming pool. And he used the, and, and he took the profits of that, project imported back into the country and, dealt, and, and actually address systemic poverty in the nation. Does that sound like that might be the kingdom of God? 
Uh, we were just in Hawaii, just, a, you know, uh, one of these years when he's having those conferences, because there's some transformation there that Francis was speaking. We had the, the lieutenant. I, mean, I just, I was sitting at the table with these guys, you know, on the, the beginning banquet there, and and they were just telling their stories, you know. David Monroy, he was there. He was actually a lawyer there, and he he, he told the story of, of how he had he he had a little like a little church in their lawyer firm, but several lawyers firms were working out of this building, and they get together once a week for church, so to speak. And one of the ladies there, you know, they work for a different firm. One represented in this this bankruptcy, Aloha Airlines, and the other one represented the bank, you know, the Bank of Honolulu, and and they were on different sides in that particular situation. And one day they just looked at each other after church and they go, "I wonder if God has a solution for this." And God gave them a solution, and all them everybody was happy with it. There was another guy named. Uh, uh, Chuck Ripka, who, he started a bank in Elk River, Minnesota. He just God gave him a download on how to do that. I mean, he just he just set up this bank and and uh, you know structured it in a way with the way God showed him to structure, it, and it became the fastest growing bank in Minnesota. People from the Wall Street Journal, all these people who wanted to come interview him. He said, I'll, "You can interview me if you will let me pray for you." He ended up leading half of those people to Jesus. But it's also a bank that, you know, if you need a prayer, you can call the bank or go to the bank. <clears throat> you can call the bank and say, is this the bank that, that uh, prays for people? Is this, yes, uh, just a moment, I'll transfer you to, to that department. And so we had a whole department set up that prayed for people. And the year that I, that I saw him, they had led about 80 people to Jesus and had about 80 people physically healed at the bank. Some people I got connected with a few years ago, uh, Steve and Judy Capps. I, I, I kind of walked them through a lot of their, their whole process here. <coughs> um, Steve's a businessman. He has an insurance agency <coughs> in Mount Pleasant, Texas. And they started walking through the ways of the kingdom. And all of a sudden, they got started having kingdom burdens and kingdom passions. And very successful businessman. I mean, he grew up very well. Uh, another firm, large firm, you know, Higginbotham, you know, insurance bought him out, and now he's still leading it, but, you know, he's, he's just, they're just, he's just good. And, uh, and so they got a passion for these single moms on the welfare system. How can they help them? Well, the first thing they did was, say, well, we need to find some housing for them. So they bought a whole set of apartments. And, uh, and so they began to put these young gals, single moms, they, had, they were single moms, in, this, in their, these apartments. And then they brought them, and, they, and they, then they bought a building. So here's a set of apartments. Then there's this whole group of HUD housing. And then there's this, you know, this building that they bought that was like a pawn shop that they bought, and, and they ended up turning it, converting it into a, like a training center, you know, kitchens, and they taught these ladies life skills. 
And whenever they got off uh, welfare, they just celebrated. Or whenever they got off food stamps, you know, they, they go this step, step by step by step. Just, just uh, helping them get off the system. Uh, and then in this training center, they were attending some Baptist church, okay? It's a Southern Baptist church that they're trying to bring the kingdom into it. You know, I, I spoke at that church many times, but they're not really getting it. But they didn't fit in that church anymore, you know. They still attended it, but it's like, we just don't fit. So they'd have this in this training center. We'd, you know, we'd have a conference on the prophetic or deliverance or healing. I mean, they were just doing all the kingdom stuff because nobody's doing it in their area. So I guess we'll do it. You know, remember, they're business people. And, uh, but, the, but the Lord began to give them a system of how to get these women off of the system and and so it, it, it's, their ministry is called like Hope Ministries. And so it, it actually began to be so successful that other places in the U.S. said, how are you doing this? And so they started one in Memphis and, you know, like several other cities and, you know, that's around. Uh, got attention of some people in Brazil. Uh, so a few years ago, I went to Brazil with them to Porto Alegre where they just have all these churches simply working to get their people off of their, their system, their welfare system. These churches working together to do that, but they didn't really have an understanding of the kingdom, so I taught them the kingdom. Then we did the things of the kingdom. You know, we, we heal the sick, cast... I mean, I did all this teaching on this, and they're not... You know, we're opening up a whole new world for these churches, you know, down in, down in Porto Alegre. But when I went down there... They had already gone up to Brasilia, which is their nation's capital, and met with their people, like their welfare people, and uh, loved what they were doing. Uh, and they, met, they went down to the state that Porto Alegre is in, the, the capital of, a, of the state, and they met with those state officials and the county officials that had favor with all of those things. In the next year, the president's wife of Brazil comes up to Texas and meets with them to see exactly what they're doing. This model is being used. They, they got invited, you know, when Ben Carson was uh, head of the welfare thing in the, in the Capitol, they got invited to that. They loved what they were doing and said, we want to incorporate a lot of this into our systems because you, whatever you're doing seems to be working with what we're doing is not. And they actually gave them control of all that HUD housing that was in between there. The government still owns it, but they control who goes into it. And just simply to bring the kingdom into this world, dealing with systemic poverty and where people are at, getting them off of that. Does that sound like that might be the kingdom of God? And that's just kind of growing and expanding. But, you know, there's still business people. But Steve is also dealing with a lot of business people, helping them understand how to, that God's called them to to transform their, their little world. Uh, one of my spiritual sons is a, is a country singer. In fact, I, I kept noticing, I, his wife has texted me like I don't know how many times right now as I'm, as I'm talking, it has just popped up on my little phone there. But, you know, he's a, he's a country singer. He actually married into the family because his wife, I've known her since she was born. You know, we were country, they're kind of, really kind of our family. And, and her dad has since passed, and so, you know, I'm like, I'm the, I'm the dad, you know, kind of connecting a lot with her and her, and her husband. And, and so, uh, so he, he, you know, he, he's, in the, he's in the industry, he's in the music industry. 
And uh, so he, his, his, his wife uh, told me, she said, God told me I was going to marry a worship leader. And I married a country singer. Okay? Uh, but w- one of the, the, the song that really kind of put him on the, on the charts and the one that his, his biggest, first big, big, big hit that got him into the Grand Ole Opry is called Long Black Train. And uh, it's, it's about sin. It's what it is. And, uh, and, and that, about getting into sin and following into sin. And, and so, you know, we'd go see them, when, like if he's doing a concert. So he invited us to Fort Worth where he's doing, he's doing a concert. And here he is. He's at, at Billy Bob's. I don't know if you've ever heard of Billy Bob's, but uh, you've seen, like, what, what's, what's that urban cowboy show, or, you know, with John Travolta years. That was way, way before your time. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's, a, it's a massive bar is what it is, and they do concerts in it. And, and the chorus of that song goes, there's victory in the Lord. I say, there's victory in the Lord. Praise to the Father. You know, I mean, it's, it's, and so here they are, and it's like he sings it at the end, and everybody knows the song. And, and when they sing, and, and so it's like everybody's standing and they're singing, you know, they're half drunk. Oh, there's victory in the Lord, I say. I mean, I go, he's a worship leader. So you probably would recognize some of his songs. You know. I'm not. Anybody know who I'm talking about? Get one. <laughs> Nobody listens to country. All right, here, here's, here's one of his songs. <laughs> Go to lock them doors and turn the lights down low. You've heard that one, okay, yeah, all right, so you've heard that one, so you've heard of some of his songs. You know, but here's the thing, all of those people like I'm talking about, even like them, because, you know, some of the messages they're getting back to me was like, they've just moved, how, how do I find a church? How do I find, you know, I need, we need to get inside of a church. You see, all these people who no longer fit into the church culture, they still need connection. They need relationship. They need to grow up. They need maturity. They need someone speaking into their life. They need connection. But the, the current system that we have established is not something that they fit into anymore. So you have to think in terms of what does church look like whenever we're actually kingdom in our orientation, where we're actually equipping and empowering people to impact the world and bring the rule of heaven into their world, but still stay connected and related because they still need connection. A lot of them aren't finding that. I'm working with a man now uh, who's like, uh, he, he's, he's in Switzerland, and, and, you know, he's like a head of HR of one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world. Uh, you know, it's, it's massive in, in the U.S. And, and around. So he's like, how do I bring the kingdom of God into my work environment? 
And with him, I'm saying, well, we start with you. You know, if we don't have, you don't have the kingdom inside of you, you know, you're not going to bring it into your world. So that's his starting place. You know, not, not so much the world, but, but, but himself there. So we need to understand that, that we need to help people find those relationships, those connections. And I think the church that's really going to be successful in the days ahead is a church that begins to think in, in these particular terms. How do we, how do we structure ourselves in such a way that people find connection, they find relationship, but actually activates them, deploys them, and celebrates them whenever they bring his kingdom into the world. Not, to, not a place of retreating to where I just, you know, but it's a place of relationship and connection where they actually have life-giving relationships that speak into their life. That's, that's what I think you need to think outside of the box and think in terms of what does that look like. And so, therefore, the old paradigms are not going to really function or, or fit. You can keep some things, but keep in mind that at the heart it happens, happens to be the kingdom. How do we empower people in the ways of the kingdom? You see, the world is looking for solutions to problems that we face. And what has happened, the world is giving world solutions, worldly solutions, but they're counterfeit solutions. They're not kingdom solutions. So you have all of these things that have been hitting the news in the last, you know, three years or four years, all these different things, these little emphasis that the world has thrown out, but those are, those are counterfeit solutions to real problems, and, but there is a kingdom solution to every problem. I had a man in my church who worked for the Internal Revenue Service. Hard, didn't, didn't know anything about databases, but they had some issues and problems. And he, he asked the Lord, he says, Lord, you know, can you help me? And the Lord gave him some formulas and some things. And he went to his uh, boss and he said, hey, you know, see if this works. And they take it to the guys who did and they go, this is great. This works. Where, where did you get this? And he goes, I got it in a dream. You know, God gave it to me at night. And they gave, and they gave him a promotion. It happened three times. God has answers to every issue that the world is facing. The world is good about giving counter... People gravitate to these counterfeit solutions because it, here we got this is it, but it's counterfeit. It's not, it's not, it's not, it's not going to really fix it, Okay? Is not going to really fix it. And all it is going to bring division. So if you're seeing something gets the world's throwing out there and it's bringing division, and, you, know, you know that's not heaven, okay? But there are heavenly solutions to, to all of the particular issues. And when the world encounters the kingdom, they, they encounter the wisdom of heaven and they're sucked into it. It's, it's, it's like that... You know, in that passage in uh, 1 Kings chapter 10, when the queen of Sheba visited Solomon. I mean, she, she came to test him. So I came to see if these things were true. And at the end, she goes, it's all true. Wow. 
I mean, you, you displayed so much wisdom, even with the small things, even how you set your table and your servants did and how you went up to the, the place of the Lord. He, he, she said, you, all this stuff is, and it says that, that her spirit was taken from her. In other words, she was taken out and gave glory to God. Gave glory, she just gave glory to God uh, for the wisdom she saw on Solomon. How God chose you. You see it? The wisdom of heaven captivates the world. They're like, they're drawn. They're sucked into it. And God wants to just simply display it. Anyone who lacks the wisdom, let him ask. And God's going to give it, and he's going to give it liberally. I mean, everything God's called you to do can be found on a can of WD-40. I mean, seriously, you know, what's on, on the can, it says it cleans and protects. It displaces moisture. In other words, it displaces what causes corrosion. It loosens rusted parts and lubricates. In other words, things that are frozen can now start to work and move and shift. I mean, it's God, that's what God has called us to do. So every time you pick up that can, you go, that's, that's my calling right there. Lord, give me a WD-40 anointing, right? But our capacity to transform the world around us is going to be dependent upon us being transformed ourselves. I mean, you cannot transform a world around you if you're not personally transformed yourself. So the beginning place, like I was talking with that one guy, his beginning place with him is looking at his own life. Are you, are you pursuing personal transformation there? Because it needs to come out of you organically. It needs to come out of you because what's inside is what's going to come out. And so you need, that's kind of the beginning place. So if it's not in you, it's not going to be around you. Otherwise, it's just going to be a project and not really be organic. So it needs to flow from within. That's kind of the beginning place of it there. You know, so whatever's on the inside, you're going to create it on the outside. I mean, it's just like in the Old Testament, there was Joseph, right? Joseph, you know, God trained him for what he was going to do with Pharaoh by bringing him into slavery, <laughs> And here he was he, over Potiphar's house. So he organized and br brought order to Potiphar's house. And then he, you know, that, that was okay. He, he, he graduated on that one. So we're going to take it to the next level. So he goes to prison. And, and uh, which is all God training him. And so, you know, he, he ruled the prison. He ordered it, structured it. He ruled the prison. And that, that actually gave him, you know, the, the skills that he needed you know, for the whole, the whole world, basically, because Egypt was like this huge reigning power in the, in the world in that day. But it was in him. What was in him comes out of him. If it's not in you, then it's not going to really come around you. I mean, you take somebody who has a poverty mindset and you put them into a really nice house, they're going to trash it. But you take somebody who's royal in their thinking and you put them in a, 
in a pigsty, they're going to they're gonna clean that thing up. I mean, because it's inside them. You're going to bring the order and the structure to the world around you. So what does the kingdom look like? Well, the kingdom, you know, the kingdom rule inside of us like this, is that whenever the kingdom of God is ruling in you, you're going to surround yourself with government. You know, with authority, with people who will speak into your life. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to immerse yourself in, into life-giving relationships, not run from them or seclude yourself from them. You're not going to be isolating yourself. You're not going to focus on your needs first. You're, you, and so what happens, the kingdom is going to produce that, that environment inside of you that will enable you to grow and to, and to mature because you're going to come into accountable relationships. In fact, you'll actually initiate, initiate those kinds of relationships and you'll actually begin to, you know, knock off the ones that are not feeding you, that are not life-giving you, and you begin to pull in the ones that, that really are. People who can pour into your lives and speak into your life and actually, you know, expose the blind spots that you have, because we all have them. When the kingdom of God is inside of you, then you have the value system of the king, the passion of the king, wanting to do the will of the king, pursuing righteousness. When the kingdom of God rules within you, then you're going to be filled with the peace of heaven, joy of the Lord. Because that's what the kingdom of God is, righteousness, peace, and joy. And so what is inside of you will actually flow out of you. And, and, uh, and so since God has called us to transform our world, <coughs> that mandates that I then become transformed myself. Transform people, transform their world. It flows organically out of you. You start with you and then just let it flow. Otherwise, it becomes a project. And you won't last. You'll run out of gas. You, you'll start, but you won't be able to finish the race. You'll just simply run out of fuel. And a part of that is simply... <coughs> pursuing the, the maturity. You give your heart to Jesus, you become a new person, you, bec you become a new creature, but transformation takes time. Paul said this in Galatians 4, 19. He says, I labor until Christ is formed in you. He's in you, but is he formed in you? Your identity is not your maturity. If there are two conferences going on in, in Berkeley today, and it's like one of the conferences was advertised, hey, attend this conference, I'm telling you, we're, you're going to get a, an amazing anointing. I mean, if we're talking, the fire of heaven's going to come on you. You're going to be able to raise the dead, cast out demons. I mean, you're going to be able to, you know, the power of God's just going to come on you, the anointing for healing. And then there's another conference on, on discipleship and growing and maturing. Like, okay, so which one of those conferences are you going to attend? I'm with you. I'm on the anointing, you know. The, forget the other. I'm going, for, I'm going for the fire of God. But the truth is, 
We should run after anointing. We should run after that, but we should equally run after maturity. You see, we, we need to steward the anointing, and maturity helps us to steward it. God's, you know, God gives us, he, he's a really good giver. I mean, he's, he's really, he's a good giver, and he, and he will actually give you more anointing than you have maturity to steward. I mean, none of us would give our two-year-old a hunting knife, but like, it's like God does that. <laughs> he just does. I mean, he's going to give you a lot more maturity, I mean, a lot more anointing than you have the maturity to steward. So I guess the question that we have to ask ourselves is this. Do you have the character to bear the weight of the anointing that you want to walk in? Because that anointing can take you out. See, one of the problems is that we think if somebody's walking in a great anointing, that they, they must, God must, like, trust them with that. They, they must have the stature. And that's a mistake, because that's not true. Gifts are given. Fruit is grown. So when God begins to give you gifts, that gifts is not a, he's not, it's not a reward system. Now, no doubt God will create more opportunities when you're faithful with what he's given you, but he will give you a lot more anointing than you have the maturity. And actually, that maturity can actually, it can destroy you. So what happens, we see somebody that we go, oh, this person, you know, he's got this fire, great anointing. And, well, and then we presume they must have the character, the stature, you know, to go along with that, or God wouldn't trust them because we've got a performance mindset. And then all of a sudden, that person has they they have a falling they fail have a moral failure or something like that and you go oh, i can't believe that happened to them and that's because they had more anointing than they had character this is why you have to run after both you have to and you actually have to run after it on purpose In other words, you, you know, most of us grow and mature accidentally rather than do it intentionally. And if you become intentional in your pursuit of maturity, you can actually grow faster if you actually do it on purpose rather than just let it happen accidentally. It's like God's going to grow you and mature you, but some of the ways that's going to happen to you, you're not going to like. In fact, some of that could actually be avoided if you'd be just pursue it. Not all can, because some of that's this way is going to grow and mature you. So, you know, if we, if we go to the book of, of Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 8, you know, it says that Jesus ascended on high, you know, and then he gave gifts to men. And then verse 11, he talks about that he's given these, these, this fivefold, you know, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Then it goes on to say in the next verse, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. And so in other words, when all of these are in the house, then the saints get equipped. 
if they're not all in the house, then there's, it's not a proper equipping because a lot of the equipping is going to be self-feeding. It's going to be for, you know, turn inward, not actually to turn outward. And that's what has happened because some of those, the ones that send them out, the prophetic that speaking, speaks in the destinies and the, and the apostolic which empowers and sends out, you know, was, since those weren't really there, then the church turned inward. And then even the evangelists, the, you know, they're actually winning people just to, to bring the sheep into the, into the, you know, the sheep pen. And, you know, and, and so we, with that inward turning, that's the shift that is beginning to happen now. You know, that God is beginning to anoint the, the, the fellowships and the bodies that are beginning to function apostolically. You know, where all are there. But since they're all there too, the other thing that happens and. You know, in verse 13, it says that, that we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And then it says to a mature man. And it describes maturity. To the measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. Maturity looks like Jesus. Has the character of Jesus. The heart of Jesus. The passion of Jesus. And then it says that you're no longer to be like children tossed here and there by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, subject to deceitful scheming. You see, the devil has, he's, he's a schemer. And he's trying to get you to come into an agreement with the lies. The lies of this, of this world. <coughs> with him. God's trying to get you to be able to recognize it whenever you hear voices that aren't yours. Whenever you have thoughts that are not yours. And wants you to come into that place of, of, of maturity, uh, into the fullness of stature. So you're not going to be knocked past back and forth. In verse 15, he says that, you know, we're speaking the truth in love, that we grow in all aspects unto him. So he wants all of us, all parts of us to grow up. Uh, you know, maturity is not measured by how much you know. It's not measured by knowledge. And a lot of times we go, you know, I just, want, I just need to attend another course, you know, read another book. Let's go have another conference. Let's, it, I mean, we all know smart people that aren't mature. <laughs> maturity isn't measured by how long you've been a believer either. It's not measured by time. Because we all know old people <laughs> that aren't mature, right? It's a process you go through, and you don't get to skip the process. I mean, it's not automatic. I mean, you know, Hebrews chapter 5, I love this in verse 12. It says, for by this time you ought to be teachers. In other words, there's been enough time that has passed that you should be functioning as a teacher. He says, but... He said, but you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracle of God. You've come to need milk and not meat. You should have been at this level of maturity by now, but you aren't. And that's where a lot of the issues of the church is, is that we just fool the people that are still small in the faith. They're just in the sense that they're just still young in the faith even though they might be old in, in the body. But maturity happens faster if you 
cooperate with it and you're intentional about it on, on your part. You, you can only give what you have received. Freely you have received, freely give. I mean, but if you don't have been, but if you haven't received it, then you can't give it. And you really need to be before you do. So there's these stages of maturity that we have to go through, and these steps of maturity that we have to walk through, and you don't get to test out on any stage. You ha- you will go through every stage. So we're we're going to look at first 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 uh, John chapter two, and spend some time there in verses twelve and thirteen and fourteen. So you can kind of look that up quickly. <coughs> Are we good? Okay. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna kind of. Uh, we're gonna. We're gonna work on this right here, and then we're gonna get really, really practical on, on how to do that. So, in this, you know, in this, John is talking. The Apostle John is, is, is talking here. He, uh, he's, he's going to use three different, really, stages of growth and maturity, different places of stages. He's, not, he's going to talk to children, young men, and fathers. Okay, so, you know, most of the commentaries agree he's not talking to actual children, actual young men, and actual, actual fathers. Also understand that this has nothing to do with gender. Oftentimes, the Bible will use a masculine gender when it's talking about both genders here. So when it's, you know, children, of course, you got both in that one. But when it says young men, you know, also say, you know, it's, it's talking to young women, too. You know, when it's talking to fathers, it's talking to mothers. So I understand that he's talking about stages here. So when I use that terminology, and if I don't include the feminine portion of it, understand it's included, okay? <laughs> Just understand that. <coughs> All right. So this is, this is what he says. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his namesake. You get a lot of repetition. By the way, repetition is usually for emphasis. It's like an exclamation point. Uh, verse 13, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And I've written to you, children, because you know the Father. I've written to you, fathers, because you know him who's been from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong. The word of God abides in you, and you overcome the evil one. So let's, let's just unpack this right here. The first group that he's going to be talking about is children. And, it's, and, and what happens is that John and all the, all the, the writers in the New, New uh, Testament may have their favorite words that they use to describe believers. It's like Paul's favorite word happens to be saints. He just calls you saints, you know, which is holy ones. Uh, but John, he, he, he just like calling them children. You know, he's a true father, but, you know, he just called them children. 
And actually, that word children, which is used two times here, he actually uses two different words, two different Greek words there. Uh, the first one happens to be uh, technia, and that was basically, that one is talking about relationship, and this is actually the most common word that he, that he uses. It's, it's like, this is my child, you know, we have a relationship, this is my, this is my child, and, and so he, he, he's speaking out of relationship here. But the other one he uses is the word padia, and that is really talking about immaturity. That you, you know, in other words, you need somebody to instruct you. You need somebody to, to, to teach you. That, that's, that is, that the padilla is, is the word for that one there. And he actually uses both of those words. And he says basically two things. He said, he said, you, your, your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. And secondly, he says, you know, the father. So these are the two things that he says, you know, your sins have been forgiven and you know the Father. So he's, he's really talking about what God has done for him that because, you know, what, what Jesus did on the cross and he died, and he's talking about coming to a relationship with God, you know, that I'm able to go, know God as Father because my sins have been forgiven. So the focus is what God did for us, what Jesus did for us, how he died across. And, and so the emphasis here is upon what you were given, you're given a relationship with the Father. You are given forgiveness of your sin. You, you're given a new nature. In other words, you, you, God, the Father gave you these things. And so a child is about what they have received, you know, what God has done for them. Now, because of that relationship, I can rejoice because, you know, Jesus' sacrificial atonement on the cross took care of all this stuff. Now I can begin to know God as my Father there. But, but in this particular stage, you know, children, life is always wrapped around what you have received from him, and it's wrapped around their needs. If you, if you have babies in your home, you know how needy they are. I, 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 have, I, have, I have nine grandkids, and I forgot how needy <laughs> these kids are. You know, we got a four-month-old. Our youngest is four months old. You know, we got, we got four months. We got two. We got a couple four-year-olds. I mean, we got all the way up to age ten. I mean, we just—they're needy. It's like life is wrapped around their needs, and they just suck the life out of you. <laughs> My goodness. But understand that when you come into a relationship with Jesus and you come in in your stage and you're very, very needy, you don't need to be ashamed of that. You know, don't get on to somebody as they start, to, as they're needy, as they're starting this journey here. You know, because if we all come into a relationship with God with this. And, and in this relationship, as you start off, you know, the main question you're asking God is like, you know, we're like, what, what can you give me? Because life is around what, 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 what God gives you, God's provision. And, you know, and in this particular stage of maturity, you, know, you live to be ministered to, to be, to be attended to, to be taken care of, to be given gifts, to live a blessed life. I mean, like this, that's where you start off. You, you know, and you know, it, 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 there's nothing wrong with starting off with that way. You, know, you just don't want to be that way long forever. You know, you need to grow up, but, but there's a receiving mentality 
that you need to have because, you see, in this particular stage of maturity, what becomes ingrained in you is learning how to receive what the Father has to give. You see, for your entire Christian life, you have to become a great receiver. Great saints are great receivers. And you learn them in this stage. You learn to ask for the moon. You know, it's kind of like in the, in the story of the prodigal son and, and, and uh, the, the older brother there. You know, where the father says to the, to the older son, he says, you know, because the son complained, like, you never gave me a, even a goat to share with my friends. Right? He was waiting to be rewarded. And the father said to him, you know, everything that I have is yours. You know, everything. You see, that, that, that fattened calf, that was your calf. But you never asked for it. We have not because we ask not. See, God wants us to be extravagant receivers, but that happens when we become an extravagant asker. And so we have to learn to ask for the moon. Now, you know, it's like, okay, if everything, if, if, I own, if I'm an owner, everything that I have is his, I mean, I should live like I have it. everything that he has is mine. And then I have to learn to start asking. I mean, I ask for the smallest stuff. You go, well, that's a little selfish. I learned that in that stage. Yeah, I mean, it's not being selfish. I mean, it's like if I'm traveling to another country, I'm like, Lord, would you just set angels on this trip so my luggage will make it? I was a, okay, I'm going to take a little detour, just tell a story. I was doing a conference, but yeah, I was doing, actually doing a conference with uh, this couple in Mount Pleasant, Texas, you know, and uh, Bonnie Jones, Bob Jones's uh, widow, was doing it with her, and she said, yeah, we never asked the, we never asked the Lord to dispatch the angels, and I'm thinking, well, I guess, I guess, I guess I don't. I always thought, like, I was, you know, wrong to do that. She said, they're just bored. A lot of them were like, they need, they, they need a job, you know, start asking. So I was getting ready to go to Mozambique. And uh, so I'd sent my passport off to the embassy in Washington, D.C., and, and, and had included an envelope to get it back that had a tracking so I can track it. And it was going back to the U.S. postal system. I mean, it was a, I mean, it, it, and it wasn't getting back in the mail. I'm tracking. It's not here. It's not like I'm, my plane is getting ready to leave on like Wednesday. And I haven't gotten it. And I should have gotten it back. And I'm freaking out. I said, oh, you know, so, okay, I'm going to ask. So that was on a, she, she mentioned that on a Saturday so uh, I said, okay, Lord, would you just assign an angel to my passport and visa and get it back? 
get this thing back to me. So I'm looking online Saturday. It's not there. Sunday morning, I look. It still hadn't appeared. And I go, this is not, this is not going to be good. I'm not going to be able to leave because I don't have a passport or a visa. So I don't know what to, what to do here. You know, so I'm kind of I'm freaking out. I, I, I get, on Monday morning, oh, Monday during the day, I go to the mailbox, open it up, and there's the envelope with my passport in it. And I'm looking at this thing. And you know how they stamp it whenever it's gone through the, you know, the post office? It, it was unstamped. I get online. I'm saying, well, when did this thing show up? It showed up Sunday night in Amarillo. And when I, Texas. And, and I, when I opened it up, the, what they had marked on it was someone was going to pick it up. Like they were expecting me to go pick it up rather than put it back in the mail. So obviously something happened. An angel did his job, got that in there. I go, this is pretty good. This is pretty good. So then I get on the plane, and the way I go is, you know, I go to London, and I go down to Johannesburg. And so here I am, I'm in, I'm, I'm in London, and we're getting ready to, to, to leave, and, and I got a really tight connection. And I don't really have, when I get to Johannesburg, I'm, I'm doing a different airline. So I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to do that because I don't have a boarding pass because you can't get those more than 24 hours ahead of time. So I couldn't print anything off. And so now I'm, I'm like, I, this, I, need, I need all the time that I can get there. So we're sitting, you know, uh, in, in, I'm sitting on the airplane. And, uh, and they said, I'm sorry, but uh, we've got, we have some mechanical issues. And I go, I don't have the time for this. You know, it's a short time. And, and I go, so, Lord, you're going to have to have says, Well, the problem is, is that we can't get one of our engines started, and we need a starter. So we've, we're try, we can't find one. We're trying to locate one. Then we have to install it. So it's going to probably be, you know, three hours. And I go, this, this is not good. Lord, would you just assign an angel to find a starter and get that installed? Within 20 minutes, uh, we, we've located a starter. And... Uh, and so they're going to install it now. So we were like two hours late. And so I'm still like, okay, this is not, I'm going to miss it. So we made up like an hour in time. I'll go, this is good. You know, so I get there and, and, and I don't want to have to go all the way out and recheck and come back in. I'm like, I got to get to my plane. So there's a way that you can avoid all of that, but I don't have a boarding pass. Okay. So, uh, and I couldn't get one online. And even with my phone with the South African Air, I couldn't get that. So I go, Lord, you're going to have to get them. But the way you get to that place is that you have to go through an immigration line first, and they have to see a boarding pass. I go, Lord, you're going to have to do it. So I, I'm running, and I get there, and I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, Qatar Airlines must have just dumped out right before I got there. And there were, like, hundreds of people. I go, this is not good. This is not good at all. Like, it's going to take me an hour to get through this. And then you got to go through security. I still got to get, then I got to get up there and get a boarding pass. And then I got to get through security. And I, and I got like 40 minutes, you know, less than an hour to do this. I go, I'm going to miss my flight. So I said, okay, Lord, 
you're going to have to send an angel to accompany this. Which line do you want me to go into? And the longest line was the one to the right. He said, get into that one. I go, these are shorter. <laughs> get, in, he said, get into that one. I get into that one, and I'm telling you, that was the fastest line. All of a sudden, they go bang, 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 bang. This person's hardly looking at any stuff. He gets up there, and I showed him, you know, my confirmation on my, on my iPad. And he looked at my passport and said, okay. And I just walk right through. And I get there, and, I'm, and now, now I'm in a group of, you know, you, you know, some cultures don't make lines. They all just crowd in. Okay, so they were all crowded in. And I, I got to get a boarding pass. So I go, Lord, what do I do here? He says, well, you know, they're not going to be offended if you crowd in. So I said, I said, okay, so where, where do I go? He says, go to the left. So now I'm working my way through the left. I says, Lord, it's, you know, this angel has to go with me. So then, I'm, I'm, you know, I go all the way, you know, to the left. And all of a sudden, I step in, and, uh, this, and I hand the guy the stuff, and he hands me my boarding pass. Now, the security line that goes through to get screened is long. We're talking 75 to 100 people. And he looked at me. He looked at my boarding pass. He says, follow me. And he took me to the front of the line. He says, go as fast as you can because you're going to miss this flight if you don't. So I, he took me to the front of the line and, you know, went through security. And I, and I ran, and I was the last person to get on my flight, but I made it. I said, okay, Lord, I will always use the angelic from now on, even, <laughs> even, even, even with the small stuff, you know. But here it is. And, but in this stage of maturity, you, you, you learn how to become a great receiver. You, you ask for the moon. And you start, you know, you get bold in your asking. Why not ask? Because this, and this is the stage where you actually, where you, where you ever learn. You say, well, isn't that selfish? Well, you know, I think God's okay with being a little selfish at this point. You know, I don't, you know, you don't get on your little kids because they're, you know, they're needy. You know, you're just being selfish. You know, well, of course I'm a kid. You know, I should be selfish. You know, <laughs> you know that's what I want. And uh, <clears throat> but it's just you know they'll be trained later as, as they grow up. But God doesn't mind us being children and asking for the moon and asking for everything that's on the farm. The next group he calls young men, <coughs> and he says this about young men. <coughs> He says, first of all, he says, you've overcome the evil one. And then he says, you're strong. The word of God lives in you, and you've overcome the evil one. Really, the way you've overcome it is by those other two. You're, because you're strong, the word of God actually lives within you. But the, but the young man is going to be, actually see things a little bit differently. Because the, the children, you know, you see... You see God from what God can give you, but the young men is actually going to see God from what they actually can do for God. In this, in this particular stage, you've really moved on to a place, you know, you've moved beyond dependency and helplessness, and you've moved into a place of skill and success. You've moved into a place where you are a conqueror, a place of strength, a place where you no longer run away in fear. You don't confront the darkness I mean, you do confront the darkness around you. You fight the enemy, and you have a habit of winning. You're just winning all the time. 
And this, and this, and this level sounds pretty good. I mean, it's, it's amazing. There's still another level that we're going to get into here. But at this particular level here, you understand that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And it's like, I'm, I'm just going to join him in doing that. Because that's the agenda that, that he's about, and I'm going to do that. So you're an overcomer uh, in this. Uh, you have a warring and a conquering mentality begins to rise up within you. And so you move from that place where you're just pursuing relationship and receiving from God to actually begin doing things for God there. And, and, and this is really the stage where you begin to find the real solutions for the issues that the world is facing and bringing the, the kingdom rule of heaven into your particular world. Because you're thinking in terms of conquering. You're thinking in terms of overcoming. You, you begin to reveal the schemes of the enemy. This is what the enemy's doing. This is what God can do. And you're actually bringing the, you know, the rule of heaven into, into all your world there. And so if service becomes an emphasis in this particular stage. Uh, you know, you realize I'm not here to be served. I'm here to serve. And so you begin to serve. And, and so you're, you're, the, the question you have for God is like, what can I do for you? What can I do for God? So children is kind of like, what can God give me? You know, but, but a young man is, what can I do for God? Children, they're interested in simply in, in you, know, is, you know, getting people to heaven. It's emphasis, know, you, do you know the Father? Do you have a relationship with Him? Do you, do you know about your sins being forgiven? So their focus is upon reconciliation. You know, but the young men, it's about, it's about, you know, bringing heaven to earth. It's about bringing the rule of heaven to this earth. So in this stage, you have moved from preaching the gospel of reconciliation to preaching a gospel of the kingdom. It's not about just getting people into heaven and getting them fire insurance. It's realizing you have a purpose. There's a destiny on this earth. There, there is a demand on your life for the kingdom of heaven that you're supposed to bring in his rule and his reign into this little world. And we're going to, be, and we're going to just wipe out the devil in order to do that. So that's, this is, this is, it's an amazing uh, mentality that, 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 this, that the young men have. And as amazing as that is, there's... There's one more. And he talks about fathers. So fathers and mothers. And he says one thing. says it twice. You know him who's from the beginning. You know him who's from the beginning. There's an emphasis there. You know him. There's a knowing of him, but in light of the beginning. It's like... All of a sudden, in this age, in this stage, you begin to, all of a sudden, you, you, you start to see the bigger picture of what God is doing on planet Earth. You begin to see the bigger picture of all this, from the beginner, bigger picture of what God is up to. So you begin to have a different vantage point. Your perspective shifts and it begins to change here. And so you realize the Christian life is just more than just having a relationship with God. and It's more than about, you know, doing the activity you know, to bring his kingdom, it's, it's, really, it's really understanding the full counsel of the Father of what he's really up to. And in this stage, you begin to realize this. Everything the Father does flows from who he is. It flows from his character. You know, God is love. God is, the, I mean, this is who he is. So all that he does flows from who he is. So you begin to, to realize that, you know, there's something about the character that I had. Everything that I do should flow from who I am and flow from my, from my being there. 
And it says that you know the Father, and this, this knowing of the Father happens to be an experiential knowledge of the Father. I mean, it's not like you read a book, you know, A.W. Tozer book or, you know, or, or J.I. Packer book on the attributes of God. I mean, there's, there's people who write all these stuffs about knowing God. And, but is, and I know this because I've encountered him. It's an experiential knowledge that St. Corinthians 3.18, where I've gazed into him and I'm changed and transformed, you know, from glory to glory because I've actually, you know, get, you know, looked into him. And I've been transformed. And as I get to know him, then all of a sudden my passions have shifted and changed. And now I have the heart of the Father. And so I, I begin to realize all that I do needs to flow out of my being. So to kind of put these in contrast here, you know, a children's focus is upon receiving. The young men and young women is upon doing. But the fathers and mothers, that's about being. And you've already gone through those other two stages before you get into this one here. Children, they see themselves as the objects of God's love and provision. Young men and young women, they see themselves as tools and instruments in the hand of God. But fathers recognize that they are the expression of God's character and his nature. See, Jesus would make the statement, he says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And I think, actually, as you come into this, that's what you're pursuing. So that when people have an encounter with me, you've just had an encounter with what the Father is like. When you've seen me, when you've had an encounter with me, whenever we've had you know, a connection relationship, you just, you just encounter what the Father is like. And you're actually expressing this. That's not an aspect of pride. That is just the pursuit. I would just want to be a mirror that reflects him so that people see him. When we begin to compare these, you know, the children's identity and where the joy comes from is wrapped up in what God has done for them, what they have received. It's, it's kind of like, you know, some kids that, get together, and one kid turns to the other, and, you know, maybe it's after Christmas, and they go, well, look, look, look what my daddy gave me. And they flaunt what they were given. And then, of course, they go, well, what did your daddy give you? <laughs> so this is the way it kind of works, because, you know, these spiritual children, you know, that's, they find their identity and their joy, actually, from what the Father gives and so then they compare what other people, you know, what, 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 did, you know what, 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 what did God give you? Well, look what God gave me. So whenever God gives them or blesses them, they're like, look you guys, look at what I, look at here. Look, look at what God did for me, you know, and they flaunt all that stuff because it's, to them it's like, you know, they're flaunting that, well, I've, uh, they still got a performance thing. So it's like, you know, he loves me, look, look what he did for me, and all this kind of stuff. And then, and then what happens, those others who are in that stage who didn't get that, they, they get jealous. Well, you gave it to them. How, why didn't you give it to me? You know, and they're comparing gifts, and they get mad. And what happens when they don't receive what somebody else receives, they're going like, okay, I, I mean, like, what's the deal? I mean, what's, what's the, you know, why aren't you giving me what you gave them? They're in the comparison stage. 
Because they were basically tied to, you know, when the Father loves me, this is what he's going to give me. And so the absence of being blessed is saying, what did I do wrong? How did I displease God? Because there's still a performance mindset there. That, that, this, the children's stage is about working yourself out of that performance mindset. You, you know, it, it's, you're, you're, you're learning to, to live you know, with the spirit of adoption, and you're beginning to push that thing out. But that's, that's kind of where people start. And you can pretty much, you know, you can kind of listen to their testimonies and how they talk and figure out, who, you know, what kind of what stage that they're in. If they're, if they're flaunting their, their, their blessings as proof of God's love, if they're comparing or, or if they get sad and whatever, they don't, you know, because they're, you know, they're, they're in a spiritual show and tell here. And they just need to, and that's, that's kind of where they are. It kind of reveals it. Now, the young men, they've kind of already gone past that one there. And so whenever you, you know, you hear the young men like talking and sharing their testimony, they're going to talk about what they did for God. You know, you know, how they suffered for him, how, maybe how they fasted or how, you know, how, all the things they did. You know, I mean, they'll get up and they'll share their testimony. They go, yeah, you know, this week we led three people to Jesus, cast out four demons and probably would have raised the dead. But the funeral director chased us out. <laughs> And they'll share their great exploits, what they do for the kingdom of God. But the father's joy, where he finds his, his place of identity, is living out the nature of the heavenly father in his life. And he's just being at peace with that. He's at peace reflecting the character of God. You see, the fathers and mothers in this, this stage of maturity, they've already gone through those other stages. They've already been children. They've learned to be great receivers. They've learned how to live in the blessings of God. And, of course, they were, they were immature. They're like, everybody, everybody goes through that. And then they moved to become these young men. And, therefore, they're doing stuff for God, doing great things for God. They got, they got stories galore. But where they find their joy is, is not in those activities, but it's, you know, really how, how, how do we demonstrate the love of God? How do we show the faith, I mean, the, the, the character of God? I mean, it's about, about who they are, the being. Children, children, they, they, they're, 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 in that stage, they're, they're needy, and they just focus on their needs, and they can't really hardly see beyond their needs. They can't really plan for the future because, you know, everything is like now, and they, they want all their needs met now. They can't really, you know, sacrifice for the future because I want all my stuff, you know, their immediate needs met now. And so, you know, a lot of times when those in the children's stage, they, you know, like everything is an, an, everything's like an emergency. Everything's a crisis. And they just can't hardly look past their own desires. My, my uh, four-year-old grandson comes over and stays with us. But, you know, my, my wife babysits him. Uh, I have a son and uh, a daughter-in-law that both work online. And they work from home. Make pretty good bucks just working from home. And uh, so, you know, they got a four-year-old. 
And so they're having to meet his needs. And so they're very thankful that one day a week that he will come over to the house. Well, he'll just have breakfast, you know, and then and my wife will come over and, and she'll, she'll pick him up and take him back to the house. And his mom will have fixed him a lunch. But in that lunch, it's not a candy bar, but it's, it's, it's like on those fruit bars or something. You know, it, you know it's, it's not much different than a good Pop-Tart, okay? It is something sweet, and the kid knows it's in there. But he knows that he can't eat that until he finishes the lunch. So he gets over to the house, and, go, and you know, he calls my, my wife, Meemaw. Meemaw, I'm hungry. She goes, you're not hungry. You just ate breakfast. Meemaw, I'm hungry. She goes, you just ate breakfast. <laughs> okay, but you have to eat your whole meal before you can have that. So, you know, he ends up eating everything just so he can have that. <laughs> There's no sacrifice there. I mean, he's not willing to put it off. I mean, he's kind of like, you know, I got, if you give that, if I see it, I got to have it now. You know, the best thing he, they should, she should do is not put it in there, just hand it to my wife. But then he would, he would figure that out too, you know. But, you know, they, they just, if they see it, you know, it's, it's, it's my immediate need, and i got, and I got to have this thing. And this is, this is probably one of the reasons why consumer-based churches will grow is because they do attract babies. Okay? And so there is, I, actually, there's probably a place, even for consumer-based churches, you know, as they begin to bring people through the stages of growth. They're just, they're just always insufficient, because they don't always bring people past that stage. The young men, on the other hand, understand sacrifice because you don't get to the place where the Word of God is in you, where you're strong, you're defeating the enemy on a, on a constant basis without there being some disciplines and some sacrifice that is going on there. A young man is like, okay, I, I got a, an inheritance. I'm going after that. I'm going after that. I'm going to get the fullness of what basically Jesus, everything Jesus bought and paid for, we're going after that. The father, he's looking at everything from the, like I said, from the bigger picture, from the bigger pers- perspective. And the father will begin to understand that everything that they have gone through, everything that they have endured, is the enemy's, I mean, God is using that to equip them, train them, mature them. Everything the enemy has done to take, try to take them out, God will actually reverse that and turn it around and put something inside of them because of that. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Well, like everybody, whether, you know, regardless of what stage you're in, you love Romans 8, 29. It says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conforming to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Yes, God wants us to be conformed to look like Jesus. We love Romans 8.29, but, you know, most people don't like Romans 8.28, like the verse before it. This says, he works, God works good in all things, right? God causes all things to work for good together for those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. 
He causes all things to work together for good. In other words, it's, it's like he doesn't say all things are good. But he will work in any situation good. So it's like, the, you know, the father goes, yeah, look what he's going to, he's going to use that no matter what I go through, whatever blessings I've already gone through or whatever, or whatever hell on earth I've gone through, God is going to use that to conform me to look like Jesus. The young man is like, okay, I'll go through it. You know, we'll get to the other side because there's probably something, some inheritance, something like that. And the child's going like, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. That doesn't fit my doctrine that my, you know, he's a good, he's a good father. And he is a good father. But the, the children will interpret that differently than everybody else. Because <laughs> they have expectations with that title. <laughs> There's another verse. Let's see if I can't find that one. It's in James. Oh, here it is. Here we go. James 1, 2 through 4. Consider it all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials. Like, when? Like, that sounds like it's one of those inevitable things. <laughs> Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Our faith is going to be tested. What's this? And let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When? So, that, you know, the children look at it and go, this, this has to be a misprint. <laughs> it should read, if. You, you know, consider joy if, not when. Okay, not, like, like, you know, I, I signed up for the trial-free Christian life. <laughs> That's right. I mean, I, you know, you, you sauntered on down to, to the dock, and you know, and, and, you, and you go down there, and all of a sudden, you're like, wait a minute, this is like a battleship. I didn't sign up for the battleship. I signed up for the, for the cruise, for the cruise ship with the all-you-can-eat buffet. That's, that's what I signed up for. This is not what I signed up for. I didn't know I was signing up to be enlisted in the Army. That's right. We have these expectations, and all of a sudden, we go through these trials, and we go like, okay, what happened? Does God not love me? Does, is God not, you know, what happened? Did I, did, I, you know, did I mess up? Did I blow it? Did I, you know, maybe I sinned or something like that. You know, am I the Jonah on the boat? You know, it, it, you're, so you're trying to find out why you're going through this thing. And regardless of why you're going through it, you know, the, the children are like, God's, God's left me, you know, he, the favor of God is off of me now, you know, because I'm going through this trial. You know, but, but when you start looking at the rest of this, you know, it, it, it is happening. You don't, you know, you don't get to go through the, the trial-free Christian life. I mean, it's, you're going to go, you're going to go trials when it is going to happen. But when it does happen, it said, and your faith will be tested. I know you said, I don't, what's that mean? Well, you will go through things that test your faith. Not to take you out, but to build something inside of you. I mean, you will learn more from your failures than you will learn from your successes. You will not grow 
without trials, struggles, and the testing of your faith. Have you noticed this? God teaches you a word, then he tests you in it. <laughs> he, he shows you something, t- teaches you something, and all of a sudden you go through a test and you go, what's this? <laughs> you know, it's, Jesus, get, he, Jesus gets anointed, right? You know? <coughs> then what happens? He goes into the wilderness. That's right. I mean, you look at all the people who did something like Moses. I mean, <coughs> they all had their wilderness experiences. You don't escape the wilderness experience. I'm like, I don't want the wilderness experience. Well, you know, you're not going to grow and mature if you don't have that. The testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result. Now, that word perfect doesn't, you know, where it says that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. The word perfect is, is not, you know, flawless. That word perfect there means you have its end result. In other words, it's, a, it's, it's that teleos where, you know, it's the Greek word there where it's actually you see to the end. It's, it's like you're looking through, you know, a set of binoculars, and you're seeing the end. You see, you see what's out there. So in other words, that which is out there, in other words, what God is putting on you and, and creating in you, you're able to kind of see that's the end. That's the completeness. It's really looking like Jesus. That's really what he's going for. Here's another verse that messes with a lot of people. It's, it's at Hebrews 12.2. And it says, it says that we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So we fix our eyes on Jesus. He's the author. He is the perfecter of our faith. And we follow his model for the cross set before him. He says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Now, we'll, you, see, you see, his eyes wasn't on the cross. His eyes looked through the cross and saw what was on the other side of the cross. The joy wasn't the cross. The cross is not a joyful experience. And what enabled him to get through it was he had his eyes on the joy that was on the other side. So, for the joy on the other side, what was on the other side? Well, on the other side, it's going to be powers of darkness will be defeated. Their authority will have been stripped. All the sin for the whole world will be bought and paid for. I mean, what, what, what is on the other side is, you know, billions and billions of souls, you know, coming into the kingdom of God. I mean, on the other side, there's, there's the, the fullness of this kingdom. I mean, and, the, and everybody gets to walk in his kingdom. Because of the new covenant. I mean, it's, it's like that's all. His joy is what's on the other side. He, I mean, he was human. He's, I mean, he, what did he do? He said, you know, Jesus, I mean, Father, you know, is, if there's another way we can do this, I, I, that would be good to show up now and to kind of tell me that one. But he said, but not my will, but your will be done. And so he, he, he submitted to the Father in that moment. And when, then when he submitted to the Father in that, in that moment... You know, he endured the cross. 
because of what's on the other side. And you see, this is kind of what happens. A lot of times children, they hit the cross, they hit the fire point, they hit the struggle, the trial, and they give up and they quit because they can't see what's on the other side. They all just see themselves. So a lot of people they, who never growed, grew and matured, they, you know, they get disappointed with God, angry with God. I'm never going to follow. If, if, if God is like that, you know, he's not a good father. I mean, they're just, they're accusing him. They're not really seeing the bigger picture of what is going on. And so a lot of people actually walk away at that point. The young men, they're like, okay, I'll, I'll endure it, you know. But the father says, it, their heart is like this. My eyes, I'm, I will go through this thing because what is on the other side? On the other side, I'm going to look more like Jesus. On the other side, I will carry this. On the other side, in other words, they're able to look through it and see there's joy on the other side. So with the joy, I'm going to be able to go through it because that's where my eyes are. Maturity is expensive. It's costly. Grace is free. Gifts are free. Your identity is free. But walking out maturity, that's costly. And let me just say one more thing. And this is going to be kind of like a stopping point. Uh, and, and then there's some more, more things. I want to get very practical how to walk out each one of these steps. We're going to take a long break, lunch break or something. And, and then I'm going, to walk, I'm going to kind of go through each stage, you know, how to get through it and really what it looks like, you know, that kind of that process of coming into that. And so I'll, I'll, be, I'll be very practical with that. I will have a couple of other things I'll do this afternoon if you want to stick around for it. But one thing, I, 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 I want to just throw out a little bit of perspective here. The Bible talks about that when we get to the other side, we get to carry some things with that. And I don't know what all's on the other side. We, we, we have no idea all that is in front of us for eternity. I mean, but it is, it is an eternity. We, we have some indications of what's going to happen at the beginning of that time, you know, we're just, we know we're going we're gonna to have a party, okay? It's gonna, we're going to have some celebration. We're going to have a feast. I mean, the good, it's like we get to eat in heaven. That's what's kind of cool, right? <laughs> and, and so I don't know how that works, but, you know, it's, we, it's, but it's on the other side. And, and a lot of us can't fathom, well, then, then what are we going to do? Well, it doesn't, he doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us all that's going to happen for the eons and eons and eons. Now, we might have a perspective of what we think that's going to be, but we don't know. He did create a whole universe out there for something. I don't know why. I mean, like, why did he do all of that? You know, it's like, is, are we part of that? I have no idea. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't tell us anything. But I do know this. He spends a lot of time investing in our character on this side. When we get to the other side, we'll see the people on the other side will, will carry what they, their stature that they developed on this side. 
you, you know, you look in the book of Revelation, you got those elders. I mean, you got these people, we take, we get these crowns, we throw out before him. You know, 1 Corinthians 3 talks about that, that, you know, some things won't make it to the other side. There's wood and hay and stubble, but then there's gold, silver, and precious stones that make it to the other side. And one of the things that seems to make it to the other side is the stature that we develop on this side. Here's the kind of the point that I want to make. When you get to the other side, you're not going to have all the things on the other side that build the stature that you develop on this side. Because when you get to the other side, you're not going to have sin. You're not going to struggle with sin. You're not going to have a devil on the other side. All the things that build character, stature in your life in this side, there's going to be no more tears. All of those things that simply help you grow and mature on this side, those things are not going to be happening on the other side. So the summary that I think I can make, and, and, I, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm right with this. Your time on earth is your only time in all of eternity to develop the stature that you're going to carry for eternity. Just to give you some perspective, this time from the day from today until you go meet him face to face, this will be the only time that you will have to develop a character and the stature that you will have for the eons to come. And I wanted, I wanted to put that weight, the, the heaviness, the weightiness upon you just to think this thing through. Children struggle with this one. But I think those in the, as you get, you know, move towards that more, that mother and that father, you begin to see this. This is the case. So you can't waste your time here. You, you just can't. You, you don't want to waste the time and everything. I mean, it, eternity is a long time. And this is your time to come into and develop the fullness. And if you do it with purpose and you do it with intention, you actually grow faster than if you wait for it to happen accidentally. He is going to grow you one way or another, but you, you, there is the accelerated route is cooperation, understanding. So I'm going to kind of lay that out this afternoon. So, Father, I just pray that you'll just give us your perspective on this. Give us a heart that says, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Let me see everything in light of the bigger picture in eternity. In Jesus' name.